This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. If you've ever uh, looked at a list of ingredients that go into various packaged foods and saw things like mono and diglycerides, polysorbate 60, soy lecithin, etc., you will no doubt relate to our guest in segment two today. Steve Etlinger will be joining us from New York City, or thereabouts anyway, to talk about his new book, Twinkie Deconstructed. Mr. Etlinger's book is currently the subject of uh, some discussion on MSNBC.com as well as Newsweek magazine. The Twinkie was invented in 1930 by James Dewar, who always said afterwards it was the best darn tootin' idea he'd ever had. They were originally a way to use idle baking pans that were traditionally being used for strawberry shortcake during the summer. When summer was over and the strawberries were gone, those pans sat idle Well, until James Dewar decided that, well, maybe we can do something with these. 77 years later, the Twinkie is still going strong, and we'll talk about what goes in to one of those snack food cakes in segment two. We would hasten to mention that we are a non-commercial station, and in no way are we endorsing any of the baked goods produced by the Interstate Brands Corporation. Let us begin this program as we like to do with on this date in history, which is March 8th. On March 8th, 1618, German astronomer Johannes Kepler worked out his famous third, or harmonic, law of planetary motion. We'd like to also note that one of our favorite interviews we've ever done on this program was with James Conner, who wrote a book about Johannes Kepler and his astronomy. We would refer you to that on our website, radioparallax.com. On March 8, 1796, for the first time, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a ruling on whether congressional legislation was constitutional. It declared in Hilton v. United States that the carriage tax was constitutional. On March 3, 1933, the American musical film 42nd Street made its premiere with elaborate dance numbers choreographed by Busby Berkeley. Berkeley went on to choreograph more than two dozen films and direct more than 20. And on this date in history, March 8, 1988, this correspondent observed a conjunction of the planets Jupiter and Venus from a spectacular observatory point, that being the Ananda Temple in Penang, Burma. In spite of having a, uh, one of the world's worst governments, uh, as, as denoted by David Wallachinsky a couple weeks back, I really can't say enough good things about the people and scenery to be had in Burma, now known as Myanmar, and would recommend to any of our listeners, if you get a chance to go there, by all means, do it. Our quote of the day comes from an unknown source at Playboy Enterprises, who told the New York Post that Hugh Hefner, the 80-year-old Playboy founder, has secretly proposed to one of his girlfriends, this being 27-year-old Holly Madison. He evidently plans to tape the wedding for his reality TV show. The source told the paper, quote, Hef thinks business all the time and looks for a new hook. Although he also really does love Holly, he or she added. Our quip of the day comes from comedian slash rabbi Bob Alper, who had the following to say about teenagers. 
The reason Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac at age 12 and not 13 is because at 13, it wouldn't have been a sacrifice. Our statistic of the day, and this one surprises me just a little, is that close to half of all UC Davis students now hail from the San Francisco Bay Area, up from just 36% a decade ago. Although uh, yours truly no longer lives in Davis, I did live there for eight years and always kind of thought of it as an outpost of the Bay Area. And I guess that's more, uh, more true than ever now. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, this current week is a good week for outsourcing after a Chinese man advertised for a woman to serve as a stand-in for his mistress so that his angry wife could beat her up. He offered 3,000 yuan, about 400 U.S. dollars, for 10 minutes of being pummeled. So far, 10 women have applied. And we understand that Hugh Hefner has expressed some interest in this man's actions, being that he apparently uh, has two other girlfriends that are, you know, could be miffed by this upcoming uh, engagement. It was, on the other hand, a bad week, and we have to say this was a really bad week for what is described as rural humor. After a Maryland legislator proposed a ban on bumper nuts, <laughs> outsized plastic testicles, that rye pickup truck owners have taken to affixing to their trailer hitches. Said Leroy Myers Jr., it's a pretty serious problem. You have body parts hanging from the hitches of cars. We've crossed a line. We at Radio Parallax have to agree. We're not sure what line has been crossed, but we feel that in our hearts, certainly, somehow, one has. And finally, it was an ugly week for the Greek way of life after a sorority at DePauw University in Indiana decided to improve its image by ejecting 23 of its members, including all women who were overweight. The national officers of Delta Zeta worried about a campus survey that found that the sorority's members were viewed as socially awkward, retained only 12 slim white women after interviewing every member. Said Kate Holloway, described as a sorority member who was allowed to stay but quit in disgust, quote, everyone who did not fit a certain sorority stereotype was told to leave. Sorority officials, on the other hand, contend that they forced the women out because they had failed to live up to their recruitment duties. When yours truly was a student here at UC Davis, the sororities had voted to disband. And when I read a news item like this, I think, that had been a pretty good idea. They're back now, but maybe it's time to give them a second look. And, uh, you know, we love doing that segment every week because we get to play that fine bit of music from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly composed by Ennio Morricone. We noted that uh, after scoring more than 400 films, the Italian composer finally got his due when he was awarded an honorary Oscar at the 79th Annual Academy Awards. Morricone's theme from The Good and the Bad, the Ugly is uh, considered to be possibly the best known music from a Western ever. This gives us a chance to seamlessly segue into, into two different items. The first is that our theme music played at the top of every program uh, comes from a CD which is not 
currently for sale by our, by our very own producer, Mr. Edward McMillan. We will try at some point in the future to have the entire, uh, the, the entire tune available on our website. And we would also uh, love to refer you back to one of our favorite interviews we've ever done on this program, that with the immortal Eli Wallach. We're hoping that Radio Parallax's New York City correspondent, uh, former general manager Stephen Valentino, will be able to take in uh, some of Eli Wallach's current offerings, uh, which still are appearing on the New York stage. We do expect the next week or two we'll be getting a Big Apple update from our NYC correspondent. And from the Only in America file, we have the following. Residents of a Seattle suburb are complaining about a high-end pet store called High Maintenance Bitch. The store features such products as $2,500 dog sofas and $45,000 dog earrings. But some residents of Wallingford are not amused by the name. It's not really a word I want my son learning, said Beth Arnold, mother of a three-year-old. Store owner Lois Pacciano says kids old enough to read her sign are old enough to be told that bitch can mean either a female dog or an unpleasant woman. And I hasten to add, those are the words of Loris Pacciano, not those of Radio Parallax. As to whether children who can read the sign are old enough to learn about the double meanings of the word bitch, well, we, we, uh, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave that up to you, dear listener. And uh, we talked a couple weeks back about uh, the money that's being spent here at UC Davis on uh, cocoa-related research. And our eye was naturally drawn to this, uh, this blurb from UC Davis in the Sacramento News and Review. Male smokers needed for a research study of a cocoa-based snack bar. We don't know any more about it than what's in the ad, but the ad says that to qualify for this study, you must be between 18 and 35, male, and have smoked for at least one year, greater than five cigarettes a day. You will receive compensation and copies of blood pressure and heart rate results which would look really, really nice, uh, ladies and gentlemen, tacked up on your refrigerator, don't you think? You will also receive what's described as dietary analysis and standard lab results. And I guess if we've come this far, we might as well make a PSA out of this. For more information, you can call 530-752-2915. Also from the feedback department, we asked on last week's program to hear from anyone in the Eastern Hemisphere who is going to go out and witness the total lunar eclipse, which took place last Saturday. And in response, we received the following from our friend John in the UK. Douglas, on your last show, you asked for comments on the lunar eclipse from a place where it could be seen. It was the best one I've ever seen, as viewed from Manchester. My wife, daughter, and I saw the start of it as we left an ice hockey game. I explained to my daughter what was happening as she was initially frightened by chunks of the moon disappearing. When we got home, it was approaching totality, so we let Megan stay up a little longer to watch it. The moon turned a beautiful dark red and actually looked like a sphere rather than the normal disk. The best part was the following morning when we were talking about the eclipse. My five-year-old daughter had remembered my explanation and proceeded to demonstrate how the moon passes through the shadow of the Earth. She's gone to school this morning with a photo of the red moon is going to explain the eclipse to her class. Best wishes. 
We'd like to thank uh, John for that report, that firsthand report from the UK. And um, we're very glad that young Megan had a chance to see this phenomenon where where the um, the dark red moon does look like a sphere. I have seen this myself, and it is quite striking. Being front-lit, a normal full moon looks flat somehow. It does not have that uh, a rounded appearance. It looks like a two-dimensional object. For some reason, during eclipses, sometimes it does look like a sphere suspended in space. Let's hope that we are as lucky here in North America when the next lunar eclipse comes our way, which I believe is in uh, November of this year. All right, let's do a little more uh, science here in, uh, in our first segment. Um, I have this astounding article from the Jerusalem Post, which I pulled off the web, which I just have to read you because I just, uh, I don't see how this is possible. But, says the article, British scientists have embarked on a mission to study huge spots on the Atlantic seabed where the Earth's crust is missing, an enigma that defies geophysical theory and provides an unprecedented peak at the planet's green interior. The 12-member expedition left the Canary Islands with a new high-tech vessel and robotic device that will dig rock samples at the site and film what it sees. The main spot, there is at least one other in roughly the same area, and a third is suspected, is about 3,500 meters under the surface of the Atlantic and is 2,000 nautical miles southwest of the Spanish archipelago off Africa's coast. It's part of a globe-spanning ridge of undersea volcanoes, the kind of structure that forms when Atlantic tectonic plates separate and lava surges upward to fill the gap in the Earth's crust. But that did not happen this time. Where there should be a 7-kilometer-thick layer of crust, there is instead that much mantle, the dense, leafy green rock that makes up the interior of the Earth. Scientists have seen chunks of mantle that spewed up with lava, but never a large exposed stretch of seabed like this one. It's like a window into the interior of the Earth, said Bramley Merton, a geophysicist who's taking part in the six-week mission. I remember back in the 60s, there was a thing called Project Mohole, where someone was trying to, well, I don't forget who was doing this, but I think it was the U.S. government was trying to drill through the Earth's crust to get down to the mantle, to see what it was all about. So I'm rather shocked to learn that decades later, there's chunks of mantle laying around on the seafloor exposed. Who knew? And I hope that someone from the, uh, from the physics geology building can give us uh, an email here in the future to explain what the heck is going on. It's clear that uh, we here at Radio Parallax need a geologic refresher. And from the uh, disgusting file, we have the following by Rick Weiss of the Washington Post. This is from a couple days back. Headline, controversial cattle drug set for okay. Subheadline, FDA likely to approve powerful antibiotic despite warnings from health groups and its own advisors. Says the article, the Food and Drug Administration is on track to approve a new antibiotic to treat pneumonia-like disease in cattle despite warnings from health groups and a majority of the agency's own expert advisors that the decision will be dangerous for people. The drug, called cefquinome, belongs to a class of highly potent antibiotics that are among medicine's last defense against several serious human infections. No drug from that class has ever been approved in the United States for use in animals. 
The American Medical Association and about a dozen other health groups warned the FDA that giving sefquinone to animals would probably speed the emergence of microbes resistant to that important class of antibiotic, as has happened with other drugs. Those super microbes could then spread to people. Sefquinome is a fourth-generation cephalosporin, the most recent of several steadily improving versions of the cephalosporin family of antibiotics. Only one medicine from that family has been improved in the U.S., a powerful human drug called cefepime, brand name maxepime, which is the only effective treatment for serious infections in cancer patients and a reliable lifesaver against several other nearly invincible infections. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to turn to grass-fed beef, and it's time to make this kind of crap illegal. Here in America, we're running concentration camps for cattle. They're fed subsidized corn, which cattle are not designed to eat in, in pure form. They basically stand around in their own filth and are thus susceptible to powerful disease agents that can sweep through them. They are given antibiotics in their feed, along with hormonal treatments to make them basically retain water. And this sort of stuff just doesn't make good sense from a veterinary medicine standpoint, from a health standpoint, and from a just a damn basic biologic standpoint. At least at this point in time, thanks to the, uh, the unfortunate epidemic of bovine spongiform encephalopathy, mainly in the UK, we're no longer turning cattle into cannibals. But really, after reading uh, Michael Pollan's book, uh, Omnivore's Dilemma, along with Eric Schlosser's book, Fast Food Nation, it seems clear we need to go back to uh, you know, raising cattle the way nature meant them to be raised. And that, frankly, does not include injections of diethylstilbestrol a week before they go to slaughter. All right, let's, let's find a happier item, shall we? Uh, how about this from New Scientist magazine, quoting the Journal of the American Chemical Association. So the magazine, it might not turn the oil industry green, but it would be a start. A catalyst that allows waste gas to be easily converted into a useful chemical could cut the industry's carbon dioxide emissions. Since 2002, the World Bank has been urging oil firms to stop gas flaring, burning the methane that sits above oil deposits. Yet, economic ways to exploit that gas have been elusive. Now, Johannes Lurcher and colleagues at the Technical Institute of Munich have found that lanthanum chlorides catalyze a reaction between methane hydrochloride and oxygen to produce methyl chloride, a key plastics industry chemical. Noted the article, oil firms could produce the material as a byproduct and sell it. We again would like to refer you, dear listener, to various maps available on the web and, and, and from numerous commercial sources that show the earth at night, the amount of light that's being put off from our cities and from things like, uh, well, like gas flaring in oil fields. And this is an extremely significant contributor to CO2 emissions. I mean, these oil fields like in the Middle East, in Siberia, they're burning off much more than gigantic cities worth of light at night, just burning it and wasting it. And even worse, you know, no form of combustion is complete. The methane that isn't burned but is just let off into the atmosphere is 20 times as potent a greenhouse gas as is CO2. This is a really bad idea no matter how you shake it. And uh, hopefully, 
Some of these chemical methods that they're exploring will enable us to trap some of these compounds and not just, you know, use it to help fuel global warming. And I, and I do want to talk about Scooter Libby, but let's put that off to segment three. We need to talk about what goes into processed foods, and we'll do that in the following segment with author Steve Etlinger. Stay tuned. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Our guest in this segment is writer Steve Etlinger, author of six books whose fascination with everyday consumer products has led to his current work, Twinkie Deconstructed. And yes, by Twinkie we mean that mass-produced yellow snack food cake seen in convenience stores everywhere. They apparently sell 500 million Hostess Twinkies every year. And like other similar products, its ingredients are selected to be economical for the baker while promoting the ever-important shelf life. If you've ever perused the label of a commercial food product, you know that the list of ingredients is long and full of biochemistry. Steve Etlinger was doing exactly that one day with an ice cream bar when his daughter joined in to ask, Daddy, what is polysorbate 60? Thinking that was a fair question, Steve set out to investigate what ingredients we're eating in such products and where those items come from. Some of the answers will surprise you. I was surprised, despite taking courses in organic chem, biochem, food science, medicine, and working several summers for a canner where I held the title of condiment clerk. We're especially pleased to welcome Mr. Etlinger to KDVS, affiliated as we are with UC Davis, a university founded to provide science to the art of growing food. Steve Etlinger, welcome to Radio Parallax. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Can, uh, can we start with one of the, uh, the book's big surprises? Um, you, you subtitled it. My journey to discover how the ingredients found in processed foods are grown, mined, yes, mined, and manipulated into what America eats. Since you even inserted this double take in your title, I think we better start with foodstuffs that are mined, starting with the ingredients of baking powder. Yeah, I was blown away to find that the ingredients in baking powder, the, the ubiquitous little can of white powder you find on everybody's kitchen shelf, and which is the same, basically the same stuff they put in Twinkies for leavening, came from rocks. In fact, it comes from three different rocks, and uh, those are three out of the five that provide ingredients for Twinkies, which is kind of amazing when you think about it. I was able to go out and see them mined in Idaho and Wyoming. There's another place I didn't go in, in, in the Ozarks where the limestone comes from. But in the, uh, the, the best one was the Trona mine, which Trona is an ore that's found in a huge deposit in Green River, Wyoming. It's almost pure sodium carbonate, and uh, I found myself going down a mine shaft 1,600 feet down, which is the distance that's equal to the height of the world's tallest building. <laughs> then got into a Jeep and drove for half an hour. <laughs> it, is so, it was so big, and this is one of five mines there. And I saw them 
at the uh, face, the mine face, where they were scraping off this rock, which they then convey up to the surface for, for a, a small amount of processing. You talk about uh, leavening, and I think people think of yeast as something that makes food rise, but uh, I was sort of intrigued to learn that this whole idea of using a powder, a non-yeast way of making stuff get bubbles in it, uh, is pretty new. New as in like a century and a half old. It is one of the very first consumer products, mass-produced, mass-marketed consumer products. When it came, when, when first baking soda and then later baking powder were the first things that people were able to buy in the can with labels and so forth. And that's why, in fact, the labels on baking powder are so old-fashioned that people grew attached to them. <laughs> they haven't <laughs> changed in all these years. You know, the ones on Calumet and yeah. Rumford baking powder and so forth. It's really, uh, it's really uh, quite neat. In any case, the powder was a replacement, really, for yeast, which wasn't the thing you needed in cake. You know, yeast is for bread, and it's a little unpredictable. You could have picked any commercial food to examine. You started looking at an ice cream label, but you decided to select the Twinkie. What made you settle on the Twinkie? You know, I had so many artificial ingredients to look at. I was trying to find a handle that would allow me to do a small number of them that made sense to readers and work, you know, that work for a book. And uh, while it's, it's almost got a plot now, because what I did was I, I found a, a well-known product with an ingredient list that had just the right number of ingredients to make a book at a chapter per ingredient, <laughs> which had a range of ingredients, as opposed to three ingredients or a whole lot of colorant or just vitamins or what have you. And I'll be darned if <clears throat> the Twinkie ingredient list didn't turn into the table of contents of Twinkie Deconstructed. It is. Well, it looks like you came up with 39 different ingredients to examine for the, in the course of the book. That's it, 39. It's <laughs> just uh, amazing. But you know what? <clears throat> they, they may all be chemicals, but so is all food. Uh, some of those chemicals are flour, <laughs> right. sugar, sure. water. <laughs> right. <laughs> that old hydro- dihydrogen oxide, that really gets you. Yes, it, yes, it does. Let, let's set a couple of urban legends about the lowly Twinkie. Um, first off, its primary ingredient is indeed wheat flour. They really are baked, and they really do have a finite shelf life. Yeah, it's 25 days, <laughs> but it's, it, is, it is a shelf life. And they, they do go stale, uh, not very fast, they don't spoil, but it's more because of sugar than because of the, uh, well, the sorbic acid does a good job. Sorbic acid, by the way, is the only preservative. It's the only preservative, and everyone seems to agree this is a very, very safe uh, thing to put into your food. It really is. It's safer than salt. Now, you have a food science um, uh, school at Davis, correct? We have quite a bit of food science that goes on here. Yes, we do. I'm sure some of the scientists there would have something to say about this. I'd love to talk to them. Well, I, I hope some of them will be listening. I'm sure some of them will be, and maybe we can put the two of you together, because uh, just from my own personal reference, I would have loved if in the course of your book you'd put a, um, some ad- appendices in the back that had some of the, the biochemical pathways. I think it would really, for those of us with a little bit of background, then it would really make it interesting. You know, I wanted to do that, but the editors thought it would be, it would be too techy, too sciencey for the book, which they wanted to appeal to readers uh, for, uh, just as, a, as an interesting book to read and a helpful book for consumers. But I had to haul out my, uh, I had to dust off my high school chemistry to follow just the, just to follow the story. For example, they'd say, um, someone I'm talking to would say, oh, well, we react the, you know, the fluorapatite with, uh, with Coke, and of course that makes blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and you can do the chemical equations for the most part fairly simply. Not always. Color, I ran into problems, and the vitamins, I just went nuts. But uh, for some of the others, some of the reactions were very common or very simple. Uh, others were 
Well, like calcium sulfate is gypsum. It's just dug out of the ground, but it's the same stuff used to make plaster. Yes. But for plaster, they dehydrate it a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, there's a slight chemical. It's not really even a chemical equation, but there are chemical formulas there that are fascinating to follow, and and I'm thinking I should do a, a, a magazine article that... That, that you know focuses on that. Well, Steve, I hope I hope that in edition number two, you do you do uh, you do put some of those um, some appendices in there. Yeah, well, that that would be neat. Um, I also thought of doing um, well. Or, you know, originally you're gonna love this. I had to follow the chemicals and the reactions just to understand what was going on, and then overlay that with geography, where yeah, and overlay that with the companies doing it, and overlay that with a schedule if I was going to travel to see this done, yeah. and then try to coordinate it so it made sense, so that I could see unrelated products that happened to be in the same same area of the country. Right. Um, ultimately, you know what? That didn't work. Right. I just called people up and said, can I come see you? And I went. <laughs> you made mention of calcium sulfate uh, as being a food ingredient, and yes, it apparently goes back to antiquity being put into food, but it's also better known to, I think, people as plaster of Paris, and, yep. what, and what they make sheetrock out of in all of our homes. Ver- versatile right. stuff. It's the same stuff. There's this one deposit that's so pure uh, that all they have to do is dig it up and grind it up for use in food. It's in South Third, Oklahoma. But the same deposit produces very clean wallboard. <laughs> well, you talked about vitamins a second ago, and, and their vitamins are in the news. As of you know, this week's headlines, Coke and Pepsi are going to come up with a new what they call sparkling beverage. They're going to vitamin fortify stuff. Uh, we think of vitamins as, as you know, associated with health. They're by law added to enriched flour, and, and, and yet vitamins apparently in many cases originate from Chinese petrochemical plants, partly because vitamin manufacture can be environmentally unfriendly. That's right. That, that was one of the more astounding things that I learned. Um, one vitamin is made in Europe now, for sure, and the, the people who make it invited me over. It's in a little valley in Switzerland. They would have loved to have me there. I, I, as it happened, I, I couldn't justify the trip because it's... You know, it would be a, a several days of travel for a couple paragraphs. But um, they were wonderful. They make niacin. The other vitamins tend to be made now over in China. They used to be made here in Europe, but it, over the last few years, both the chemical companies and the, poli- and the political climate and the economic climate have all sort of converged to force the manufacturer to other to, to China really just because it's easier and less expensive to meet all the requirements uh, necessary now ferrous sulfate is, is the only mineral in the mix that's made here uh, <laughs> with a surprising process of dipping rolls of steel into big tubs <laughs> you know football field length full of sulfuric acid not an auspicious beginning for something you eat but there you go right it's sort of a byproduct of, of iron of steel manufacture I guess that's right yeah well, when it comes to ingredient number one on that Twinkie label, bleached flour, we should point out we're indeed, we're talking about chlorine bleach, the same stuff that whitens your underwear when you launder them. And uh, this is something, um, I guess, in the late 1800s, they found a faster way to bleach flour. Flour naturally bleaches when it sits. It oxidizes and becomes whiter, but they, that was too slow. That's right. And this this uh, bleaching process takes, it's instantaneous. The... Uh Chlorine going in is, of course, poisonous, but it Im- immediately reacts. And you, uh, you know your chemistry. It reacts uh, very quickly to, to form a little uh, hydrochloric acid with the moisture in the uh, flour. And I suppose other things. I don't know the full chemical reaction, but it doesn't 
it, it becomes benign very quickly. And uh, it helps destroy the protein to the extent that it makes for better uh, cake flour. And certainly you can have bread flour that's bleached, but many people bake bread without bleached flour because they want the strong protein, so they get a really strong, tough, dense loaf. Well, I do want to note when I was comparing some of the labels of things down the grocery store that uh, when they make the Fig Newton, they don't bleach the flour, but they do when they make the Twinkie. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, Twinkie Deconstructed has quite a few surprises. One that I think is going to really um, wake a lot of people up is the fact that flour mills are at risk of explosion. If you have suspended flour dust or other uh, a carbohydrate dust, you can ignite it with a spark or a flame. I don't think people realize that. It's really amazing, but every now and then you'll hear of silos in the countryside blowing up. That, that's why. But I was surprised that they had to be so careful in the flour mill. A lot of reverse uh, ventilation, uh, negative air pressure, sealed doors, and a policy of not repairing machinery until everything's shut down. We're speaking with Steve Etlinger, author of Twinkie Deconstructed, uh, which tells you maybe more than you even want to know about what goes into some of our processed foods. I think everybody knows, Steve, that oil and water don't mix. In cooking, they have to kind of be coaxed to do so. Can you talk a bit how, how this is done by the home chef versus the commercial baker? Because a lot of the ingredients that you examined are related to what's called emulsification. Right. When you make a cake at home, chances are you're going to have egg yolk, maybe even egg white, maybe a whole egg, but definitely egg yolk in the cake. It's a great emulsifier. If you've ever made mayonnaise, you know you can absorb what is it, a zillion times? I think the technical term is a zillion times its weight in oil. It is such a great emulsifier. It'll hold things together. When you eliminate fresh eggs from the mix, from the recipe, in order to extend that shelf life, as they have done with Twinkies, then you need something else to emulsify. And that emulsifier also, or, or that emulsification, also needs to help with forming bubbles in the batter, which, let's face it, undergoes a lot more stress than the batter you make at home. It is mixed quickly, it doesn't have time to set up, and it's cooked quickly. So they usually bring in a team of emulsifiers, mono and diglycerides, which are the main emulsifiers in milk, polysorbate 60, which is a real workhorse, and sodium stereolactylate, which I love saying, and the three work together to emulsify as best they can. I might add, in the cream filling, you not only have to have an emulsifier, but you add something that... that acts like an emulsifier, it adds a fat feel to the uh, non-cream cream filling, and that is cellulose gum, which is sort of a gelatinous uh, thing. Once it's, it's powder, but when it's moistened, it makes a big gelatinous blob. And that, that helps make that cream filling taste like it's actually got a cream in it when it doesn't. And I think we could basically, maybe the best way to describe what, what cellulose gum is, it's, it's basically a form of paper, wouldn't you say? Sort of. It, it's processed in the same place that makes uh, paper, that make, makes paper, but um, it also comes from the linters, the part of a cotton ball that are sort of next to the seeds. And uh, when the cotton seeds are pulled out at, at the gin, the linters are separated out, and those are 100% cellulose. It's, it's a major, major source of cellulose. I, you know, I, I tend, I, I'm sure you do too, you tend to think of cotton as, as a, a thing, not a food. Right. But, in fact, you forget, you know, cottonseed oil, we use that. You can buy that in the grocery oh, sure. store. Sure, yeah. It's a vegetable. And trees, uh, yeah, <laughs> trees are vegetables. And we should point to, that's why the, 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 the cream in Twinkie is spelled E-M-E, not E-A-M. <laughs> right, I have a subhead that says there's no cream in the cream. <laughs> 
One real surprising thing from Twinkie Deconstructed, which I didn't give too much thought to, is the fact that uh, some of the ingredients that are used in commercial products are used in very tiny amounts. They mix them in just a little bit to a large batch, which does make them the perfect vehicles to use if some terrorist wanted to poison people. So actually, this is kind of a, a homeland security issue, and I guess there were some restrictions on, on your research in this regard. Oh, absolutely. A number of companies, especially the big flavor companies, said, look, a few years ago, when, when I asked them if I could come visit, a few years ago we might have said yes, but since 9-11, forget about it. Uh, now, they're pretty competitive, so I think it suits them not to have visitors. Exactly, and, yeah. You know, a lot of businesses don't want to be bothered, which is legit. Yeah. But where it got funny was I was at, in, visiting a dairy plant in the middle of Wisconsin dairy country, surrounded by beautiful bucolic green fields and and contented cows in a brand new plant with it, looked, it was a big plant but it looked like it had 10 people running it and uh, yet I had to wear a bright red lab coat and a red hard hat to distinguish me as a potentially dangerous guest <laughs> because of Homeland Security rules Wow maybe it was just because I'm from New York I don't yeah. know <laughs> not, not surprisingly sweeteners uh, uh, come up uh, in, in the matter of, of a Twinkie you talked about sh- uh, sugar early on, and I was rather astounded to learn from your book that no sooner had the New World been discovered than European powers had like 3,000 sugar mills in the New World by 1550. That, that's amazing. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Yes, yeah, sugar really spurred the development of the Americas and the Caribbean completely. And then, and then uh, the British blockaded the French supply of sugar when they were fighting Napoleon. And uh, so Napoleon is really responsible for people turning to beets for sugar and developing ways, ultimately, of, of finding, uh, of developing corn syrup. And, uh, and, and corn sweeteners, of course, hugely important. We could probably do a whole show on those alone. But I was curious, noting on the label, they list dextrose and glucose in the labeling, and, and they're the same thing, which, can, which is why these labels can get even more confusing than they already oh, are. Oh, I'm so glad you, you know. It's, it's so much fun to talk to you because you know this stuff. That drove me crazy. And, and the, 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 on several levels, there was no way you could find out what people were, were really meaning. For example, I might call a plant a corn syrup plant, but they might call it a dextrose plant. And the, they pump really dense corn syrup somewhere. They might call it dextrose because it's all dextrose. In Europe, that would be called glucose. Mm-hmm. In, in Europe, they might call any corn syrup glucose. In uh, the U.S., they might call glucose the powder, uh, dextrose the powdered form and glucose the liquid form. There is a technical difference, but they're, you know, they're usually interchangeable. Perhaps it doesn't matter to most people. And I never could get it straight, um, partly because the people I was dealing with didn't care. And what I ultimately found out was that they probably have both on the label uh, because both are common terms. However, <laughs> I did have to just sort of uh, eventually uh, accept that um, the dextrose, was the term used for solid or the powdered or dried uh, version. Well, for people in, in medicine, when you see a dextrose solution like D5, uh, whatever, um, I had an argument once with a, with a doctor friend of mine. He said, you know, it's, a, it's just glucose. He said, no, it isn't. I said, yes, <laughs> it is, and, yeah. and, and it is. All right. The dextrose in Europe is sold as a granular, you know, ultrafine white powder. I actually bought a box of it here, uh-huh. and it's labeled glucose. Sure, sure. Well, salt is about as basic a, as, as a food comes, um, but I think a lot of listeners will be surprised to note that, that um, 
By no means does most salt come from plants like the one we have nearby here in Newark, California, near the Dumbarton Bridge, San Francisco Bay Area. You, in fact, visited a facility in upstate New York that pumps water into the ground and pumps brine back out. Right. It's, it's, it's an old-fashioned technique. It's the same as used for oil, uh, actually. And um, it was fascinating to me to go to a, a beautiful field next to or between dairy farms to a little little hut, really. And inside I'd find some, a Christmas tree of plumbing on which there was a spigot that was covered with salt crystals. I tasted some. Boy, that was salty. <laughs> um, and the, the plant, which I visited, was very old. It's like 100 years old and or more. And um, they basically spend all their effort drying it, but drying it in such a way that it comes out with crystals that are just right. It's also where they make the little blue containers that uh, I, I really got a kick out of seeing that. Yeah, I, I read one somewhere that uh, pretzel salt, they mine that because the crystals are flatter than the little tiny cubes we're used to, and that, that allows them yes. to stick onto pretzels better. Well, I think the biggest laugh I got from Twinkie Deconstructed, and that would come after uh, your mention in the intro of an executive with the title of Vice President of Cake. You have to yeah. like that. Yeah, when I first called hostess hoping to get a tour of a plant, they put me under the Vice President of Cake. That's got to be the best title in the world. That's what I want to be when I grow up. But, but even, even better than that from the book was the refusal of tech support at one company you inquired with to admit that it makes polysorbate 60. They would sort of, you noted it was kind of like a craft, neither confirming nor denying that it makes cheese. There's so much merging and reorganizing going on in the food chemistry business and the chemistry business in general that from one day to the next, these companies you know, weren't quite sure what they were doing. And, and the people would go to work each day in the same place, and the plants would be there, but they changed names. Uh, that, that was probably the oddest thing I, I, I ran up to. I'd been past the guy because, you know, you ask, can I talk to someone about polysorbate 60? And they'd say, yeah, talk to him. <laughs> wow. Well, I think the, the final thing to talk about today, you spend some time on artificial and natural flavors, which is, which is again, you could t- we could do a whole hour on that, I'm sure, if we, we set aside to. But the artificial butter flavor that comes in Twinkies or also in the case of movie theater popcorn is made in Chinese petrochemical plants, which I guess we get, by the time you're done with the book, you sort of are used to that. But the great irony uh, you noted in the book was that its containers are labeled harmful if swallowed. <laughs> just, just amazing. Well, the, the um, diacetyl is so strong. It's a natural uh, flavor, it, but it works in, in concentrations in, well, you'd appreciate this being in California, Chardonnay's buttery smoothness uh, linked with di- diacetyl. It's 50 parts per billion in Chardonnay. So you can imagine if you got it concentrated how, how strong it would be. Well, I guess that is the difference between like a poison and a useful substance. A lot of times it's all in the dosing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just think about uh, salt, for example. You know, you couldn't eat a pound of salt. And, you know, it would kill you, but you can't live without it either. And I get a kick out of the, the, uh, the dosing for, like, ferrous sulfate, which is a, in the, the mineral salt supplement. You, you buy at the pharmacy if you want. But if you go out and buy moss killer for your patio, to spray on your patio, chances are it'll be ferrous sulfate. <laughs> the book is Twinkie Deconstructed, My Journey to Discover How the Ingredients Found in Processed Foods Are Grown, Mined, Yes, Mined, and Manipulated into What America Eats. And I think even if you're someone who hates Twinkies as much as I do, uh, you'll find this to be a very interesting read. Oh, I, I sure hope so. By the way, there's some more information on the website, TwinkieDeconstructed.com, including the table of contents, which, as I said, is the, the ingredient list on Twinkies, and, and an index, some excerpts, and some pictures. Well, Steve Etlinger, th- we thank you very much for speaking with us about what it is we're eating and hope that, uh, that yeah, we can put together uh, you and some, some food science people here at UCD. 
It would be my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All righty. Turns out that uh, Lewis I. Scooter Libby fought the law, and the law won. The former chief of staff, the vice president Dick Cheney, was found guilty this week on four counts of obstructing justice and lying to a grand jury and the FBI. Libby could be sentenced to a maximum of about 30 years in prison and fined up to $1.25 million. This case, of course, was built around uh, Scooter Libby's talking to reporters about Valerie Plame, outing her as a CIA agent in retribution for her husband, revealing that he had gone to Niger and had basically destroyed the uh, story that Niger was selling uranium yellow cake to Iraq as part of a weapons of mass destruction program. We've talked about this on the program before. Outing a CIA agent uh, thusly is illegal, but no one was charged with doing that to Valerie Plame. You had to love Scooter Libby's uh, defense team, which initially went out and said, Mr. Libby is being made a scapegoat, and then decided, uh, I think, uh, after Karl Rove uh, got involved, we surmise, that this was probably not a fruitful approach to take in in a defense. Apparently, reports uh, of jury deliberations reveal that the jurors were really wondering why it was that Mr. Libby was the only person being charged in this matter. Radio Parallax thinks that's a really good question. Because we think Mr. Libby really is being a scapegoat for higher-ups. And higher-ups in this case means Dick Cheney, Karl Rove, and George W. Bush, because there really aren't any others in the higher-ups category when you're the uh, right-hand man of the vice president. Time Magazine's analysis of the case noted that no fewer than four officials testified they had told Libby who Plame was, and two reporters testified that Libby later confirmed her identity in one way or another. Prosecutor Patrick Fitzgerald followed those witnesses with eight hours of Libby on tape denying or not recalling any of those conversations. And in a way, I kind of admire his defense team, who told the jury that, well, yes, it appears that Mr. Libby had been informed earlier about her identity, but doggone it, it completely slipped his mind. And when he later had conversations with reporters about it, why, it was as if he didn't know it. Apparently, all that information is just was, had, had, had left his memory bank. Because, after all, Mr. Libby was far too preoccupied with affairs of state, like the Iraq War and the nuclear capabilities of Iran and North Korea, to remember being told things about Valerie Plame. Well, it didn't work, and Mr. Libby is going to serve some time behind bars. Now the question is, what about the higher-ups who remain unindicted co-conspirators in this matter? 
Watch this space. And uh, when it comes to higher-ups in this case, we're really intrigued to see the cover of U.S. News and World Report, the February 26th issue, which uh, features the cover story asking about America's worst presidents. From Richard Nixon to John Tyler, a fresh look at our most dismal commanders-in-chief. This was titled A Special Report. We should also note that U.S. News and World Report is a very conservative magazine, uh, even more so than Time. But in their special report by Jay Tolson, they opened up as follows. Is George W. Bush's presidency shaping up to be one of the worst in U.S. history? You hear the question being asked more and more these days. And more and more you hear the same answer. With Iraq a shambles and trusted administration declining, it is probably not surprising that 54% of respondents in a recent USA Today Gallup survey said that history would judge Bush as a below average or poor president, more than twice the number who gave such a rating to any of the five preceding occupants of the White House. We talked about this last year, some of our worst presidents. Uh, it seems to be pretty much universally agreed that James Buchanan tops the list. Noted U.S. News, uh, Buchanan, the 15th president, tacitly encouraged the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision, which ruled that Congress had no power to keep slavery out of the territories. Buchanan demonstrated a complete unwillingness to challenge those states that declared their intention to withdraw from the Union after Lincoln's election. Sitting on his hands as the situation spiraled out of control, Buchanan believed the Constitution gave him no power to act against would-be seceders. To his dying day, he felt that historians would treat him favorably for having performed his constitutional duty. Noted the magazine, he was wrong. Well, we recommend uh, this article uh, to you, U.S. News and World Report. I'm sure it's online. But we are both fascinated and encouraged by the fact that people are asking the question, is this president the worst in U.S. history? We'll only say this on this program. He's in the top three. Up there in the stratosphere with Buchanan and Warren G. Harding. With perhaps uh, Franklin Pierce as honorable mention. But we think he's worse than Ulysses S. Grant. We think he's worse than Richard Nixon. We think he's worse than Herbert Hoover. And we would again refer you to the excellent book, David Wallachinsky's book, The World's 20 Worst Living Dictators. He did not include uh, George Bush on a list of dictators, but did have a special addendum where the Bush presidency was discussed in that volume. And we think you, dear listener, need to take a look at Seymour Hersh's article, which has not been making the front pages of Americans' newspapers, but is worth a look which talks about how the Bush administration is funneling money to al-Qaeda-related groups in Iraq. Yes, yes, that's al-Qaeda-related groups. According to Seymour Hersh, the U.S. has been pumping money, a great deal of money, without congressional authority, without congressional oversight, for covert operations in the Middle East, where it wants to stop the Shiite spread or the Shiite influence. Hirsch says these funds have ended up in the hands of three Sunni jihadist groups who are connected to al-Qaeda but want to take on Hezbollah. 
Hirsch sums up his scoop uh, in stark terms, noting, quote, we are simply in a situation where this president is really taking this notion of executive privilege to the absolute limit here, running covert operations, using money that was not authorized by Congress, supporting groups indirectly that are involved with the same people that did 9-11. Hirsch added, all this should be investigated by Congress, by the way, and I trust it will be. In my talking to membership, they are very upset. They know nothing about this, and they have a great many suspicions. You can say what you want about Seymour Hirsch. He has connections in the intelligence community, and, uh, you know, if he was wrong, if this was a, a wild-ass guess and he was wrong, he would be under attack. The fact that nobody's saying very much about this indicates to us that he is on to something. We will, of course, continue to follow this story. And other examples of bad leadership, Venezuela's Hugo Chavez, who has not been considered one of the world's worst dictators, uh, but is starting to look more and more like one. Uh, We note that Venezuela has spent more than $4 billion on fighter jets, attack helicopters, rifles, and other arms in the last two years. Its spending on the international arms market is now greater than Pakistan's and Iran's. And no, we're not sure what Ugo plans to do with all of those newfound arms. Mr. Gramillan suggested that it may be to defend himself against the U.S., and to that, uh, you know, I'd have to agree that is, uh, would be a legitimate concern for Mr. Chavez. We just hope he doesn't decide to follow in the footsteps of Fidel Castro too closely. At any rate, it is interesting to note that uh, according to Nicolin de Boer from Radio Netherlands, America isn't the only place where science is under siege. Muslim creationists are waging a stealth campaign to try and make Europeans doubt the truth of evolution. They've blitzed European schools with copies of an 800-page Islamic textbook called The Atlas of Creation. The Turkish author, Harun Yahya, holds that Darwin's theory is responsible for all the evil in the world, including international terrorism. Turkey, by the way, is the one major nation on Earth where evolution is doubted at an even higher rate than it is here in the United States. Which does, again, show a rather disturbing link between the Bush administration and Islamic fundamentalism. And uh, I'm sure that uh, the founder of the modern Turkish Republic, Kemal Ataturk, is spinning in his grave right now. And we mentioned the show. We've got to talk about Ataturk in a future program. We're going to see what we can do about that. Interesting fellow. All right, and in our, uh, our final item of today's program, we need to address the matter of the so-called Tomb of Jesus and Family from the Discovery Channel. I'd like to quote from an article in LancasterOnline.com by Helen Caldwell Adams. The man who raised the Titanic will blast away at the rock on which the Christian faith is built. Or Not. Most scholars of archaeology and the Bible are betting not. Titanic director James Cameron's claim that he and another filmmaker, Simcha Jacobovici, have identified the tomb of Jesus Christ has been met with nearly universal derision by experts. The assertion that a group of ossuaries or bone boxes dating from the first century contain the names of Jesus and members of his family including his supposed wife, Mary Magdalene, and maybe son, Judah, is headline news all around the world. It happens every Easter. 
around the observance of Christianity's most theologically significant holiday, this year on April 8th, someone invariably gets headlines with an iconoclastic claim about the faith. Last year it was the Gospel of Judas and the pre-release hype of the Da Vinci Code. Said Dr. Greg Carey, Associate Professor of New Testament at Lancaster Theological Seminary, Everything about the promotion of this documentary smells of marketing. Ten years ago, the BBC produced a documentary making similar claims about the Talpiot tomb. It sank without a trace except for a similar round of scholarly dismissals. This time, marketing has made the difference in terms of attention. Said Dr. Bryant Wood of the Associate for Biblical Research, they're kind of presenting it as some new archaeological discovery. Said Wood, no reputable scholar has come forth with this theory. Well, to make a long story short, apparently the names uh, that are on these boxes are subject to dispute. They did some DNA evidence that, uh, that appears to contradict what they say it says. And if that isn't enough, uh, apparently some of these ossuaries from the same area, at least one previous one that in 2003 had been suggested held the remains of Jesus' younger brother James, uh, well, the owner of that is on trial in Israel for antiquities fraud. Well, to make a long story short, it apparently is all a bunch of bunk. And ladies and gentlemen, we are out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. We want to thank Steve Etlinger for coming on and talking to us about, well, what goes into your snack foods. we got to do more food science topics in the future. We'll see what we can do about that. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. And we'll see you next week at the same time. Lord.